Uh, well, again, it's good to, to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel, still Reed Kappel. But uh, one thing I wanted to say, we, we share this periodically on Sunday mornings, uh, but for you kiddos who are in the service, one, we are glad you're here. We're so thrilled that you're with us in service. If you didn't get a Kid Connect, you should get one of these. I would allow you to go up and grab one. They're in the little uh, vestibules out here. And if you fill these out, you can take it to the welcome table and get candy. It's a wonderful tradition. The church has done it for thousands of years. Actually, I don't know if that's true, but we're doing it. So... Um, but it really is a joy to be with you. Um, it, it was, it's fun to hear kind of the work that Joel Smith was, uh, is a part of. And, and one of the things as I think about my work and the job that I do, um, my, one of my favorite things to do is to be in situations where I get to offer advice and counsel uh, for people in need. Uh, and, and that's both a joy but also kind of a stress in my job because it's, it's tough offering advice, being in a place where someone is in need and is looking to you for counsel. Uh, but it's tough for a number of reasons because there's definitely, there's definitely bad advice that we shouldn't give or take, but we do. And there's good advice that we should give, but we often don't give or don't take for ourselves. And that's a big stressor for me because like, as I'm trying to offer advice to people, I want to make sure that I'm offering the right kind of advice. Uh, but I also know that I tend to be the kind of person that doesn't take the right advice in certain situations. Like, like for me, the classic example of something that I know is good, it's good advice that I don't take, is flossing. And, and I'm not talking about like, no, I'm not talking about like the dance, like the, like the stupid, yeah, yeah. If, if you don't know what flossing is, the dance move, just talk to any 11-year-old and they'll explain it to you. But, but, but truly, I, I, I can count on one hand the number of times I've flossed in my entire life. And I know it kind of sounds disgusting, but I mean, my sister was a dental hygienist. My uncle uh, is a dentist. Two of my cousins are dentists. So I know the importance of dental hygiene. And do you want to know how many cavities I've had in my entire life? Count them, people. Zero. Zero. I am so proud of that fact because every time I go to the dentist, he always gives me this speech like, you know, Reed, you need a floss. It's very important. And then at the end of the appointment, he tells me, you have no cavities. I'm like, yes! I feel so good. It's like, I don't know if you can win at a dentist appointment, but I win every single time. Uh, but it is. That's advice I just don't take. I probably should, but I don't. And before some of you fluoride Pharisees are judging me, some of you are right now, I can see it, but we all have pieces of advice, instruction, or counsel that we know we should take, we know we should listen to, but we don't. And, and perhaps it's because we don't even buy into it. We believe that this advice is not really that helpful or not that genuine, and we don't even believe that it's worth our time. And I think actually one of the quintessential examples of this is actually the advice, the words, the instruction, the wisdom that the Apostle Paul offers us in Luke chapter 20 as he echoes the words of Jesus himself. And it's these words that I want us to hear afresh uh, this morning. And so I do invite you to stand as we read from God's word from Acts chapter 20. Please follow along as I begin reading in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, referring to Paul, and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how he lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from the declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, 
except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if, if you've been following along in Acts, we've been reading through the book of Acts, studying the book of Acts for quite some time now, and if you've been reading along throughout the week, which I would encourage you to do, uh, to, to be in the scriptures as we gather on Sunday, uh, to be in the scriptures throughout the week, but, but you've probably noticed Paul has been racking up quite a bit of like credit card points with all of his traveling around Asia. And so he's been in all these various cities proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, and he now finds himself in Asia Minor on the western coast in a city called Miletus. Uh, and in Asia Minor, it's modern-day Turkey, so that's where Paul is. And in this situation, in this city, he has summoned the elders of the church at Ephesus to come and join him in Miletus so that he might give, him, give them rather, this final instruction on how to continue and move the mission forward, the mission of the church that God has commissioned them in proclaiming the gospel throughout the entire world. And so these people, so, so who Paul is speaking to, this is his most co committed, devoted group of leaders. They are bought in on the mission of Jesus. But if they're going to continue this mission, to be faithful and fruitful to what God has called them to, they're going to have to believe and embrace the timeless wisdom and the posture that we see that Jesus offers in believing that it truly is better to give than to receive. That if the church of Jesus Christ, both then and now, is going to be faithful and fruitful to her mission, she must embrace the identity of being sent to give herself away. And that can only happen by fully embracing and believing this truth that it is better to give than to receive. And so as we walk through this text this morning, we should ask ourselves today, do we believe that? Because that, that sounds like advice that we think is good, like, yeah, that, I think that's right, but, but do we really believe that it is better to give than to receive? Is this actually the primary posture of our hearts? And do we believe that it will actually bring about the good in our life and the lives of those around us? And so as we walk through this text, Paul is showing us that if the church is to embrace this identity of being sent to give, we see right out of the gate that the church ought to expect difficulty. 
that if the church is going to be sent to give and embrace this posture of believing that it is better to give than to receive, well, then the church should expect difficulty. And, and it's very clear in, in the speech that Paul gives to the elders. I mean, he, he, he makes it very clear that this work of planting churches is fraught with difficulty and hardship and pain. And we actually see that in verse 19. Paul's pretty clear in describing this work uh, in verse 19. Oh, back up in, in a little bit of 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So for Paul, the work of church planting is not glamorous. It, it is filled with, with humiliation. It is filled with emotional exhaustion and physical depletion. And so this is not glamorous work. And yet, Paul presses onward. And he continues in this work of proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, even though he knows that it will cost him his comfort, his reputation, and even his life itself. And on top of that, Paul is constantly living in this climate of the unknown. As he enters into every city, he doesn't know how hostile that community will be. He's constantly living in a place of, of unknown fear. The only thing he does know that he says that the Spirit made known to him is that, he, that affliction and imprisonment await him. So knowing that that is his future, you would think that Paul might slow down a bit or maybe pretend to be sick and like, you know, I don't think I'm going to go to Asia Minor now. But he presses on and he encourages the elders to do the same. And the question we should ask is why? What is it that compels Paul to continue onward with great diligence and faithfulness amidst the difficulty and knowing what awaits him? Why is he able to do this? Well, we see it in verse 24 where Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, Paul is able to face difficulty and to press onward in the mission because he knows that Jesus is worth it, that Jesus is true. That his life, Paul's life, is only as valuable and worthy as it is, as it is united and wrapped in Christ Jesus. Paul is able to be faithful in the midst of difficulty because Jesus is better than all of life. That's what compels Paul. And, and this is actually, if I'm really honest, this is one of the reasons why I continue to believe and follow Jesus personally. Because, I mean, the church throughout history and currently in our day faces great hostility, great opposition, and yet continues to grow and thrive and spread and be a source of truth and love and hope and peace in our world. This is partly why I believe the truth of the gospel, that Jesus, yes, is true, but that Jesus is worth it, even though it means difficulty. And, and for us in, in the West, I mean, yeah, we face opposition for sure, but I don't think we fully grasp the difficulty of being faithful to Jesus. In fact, I mean, maybe just to kind of connect it to us, some of you are aware of our, of our global partnership with the Shira Diocese. Uh, it's a network of Anglican churches in Rwanda. Uh, there are over 340 churches in Rwanda that the Shira Diocese oversees and is planting and resourcing. Uh, but I don't know if you're aware of this, but in recent months, there have been over 8,000 churches in Rwanda that have closed down because of a new government policy requiring certain code restrictions of buildings. 
And, and this has meant actually the closure of over 110 uh, churches in the Shira diocese. And, and so we have a number of brothers and sisters connected to our church who are not able to gather with their brothers and sisters for regular worship on Sundays. And yet, and, and I was, our global team recently was just speaking with Bishop Sam a few days ago, and he was sharing with us that, yes, in some communities, this has created some challenge and difficulty. Some people have, have left the church, but in some communities, it has strengthened them. It has brought them closer together. And, and Sam was even telling me, he's like, yes, this is overwhelming, and please pray with us and for us. But he was also sharing that like, he knows that this is not going to bring an end to the church. He knows who, is, who the church is built upon. And he knows that these little barriers will not stand in the way of what Christ is doing in and through his church. And so, so we might be here and think, oh, you know, the, the difficulty we have is that some of our projector screens go out, you know? And like, that's our difficulty. But I mean, just, I want you to grasp the difficulty that some of our brothers and sisters are facing throughout the world, and particularly with through the Shira Diocese, our brothers and sisters who, who aren't able to gather together, and yet they persist and they continue. Why? Because they expect difficulty. And they expect difficulty because they know that Jesus is worth it. And they're able to endure difficulty because Jesus is worth it. So if the church If the church is going to embrace this mission of being sent to give, she should expect difficulty. But secondly, as Paul shows us, the church should also expect to speak truthfully. The church should expect to speak truthfully. And one of the ways that that Paul kind of shows us this is that he says when he was sent to give, he boldly and persistently is proclaiming the good news of Jesus in every city he goes to. And Paul's really clear in verse 27, if you follow along, Paul says this, he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is not diluting the gospel, he's not picking and choosing, he's not trying to give them truths that they will like and kind of keeps everything else back. He says, I did not shrink away from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. Even though it came with significant challenge and difficulty, Paul persisted in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. He did not hold back because he believed what he was proclaiming was true. And it's because he knew that it's better to give than to receive. And that's true of the gospel. That yes, it is good to receive the gospel, to believe in it, to be recipients of God's grace. But we were never intended to be recipients only. If you're a follower of Jesus, your posture and your identity is not one who just receives, but who in turn responds and gives the good news of Jesus to others. And this has been God's plan from the very beginning, that God called his people Israel. He blessed them. Why? So that they might be a blessing. That God loves us. Why? So that we might extend that same love to others. That God revealed truth to us. Why? So that we might share that same truth to a world that is lost and broken and beat down by sin. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if that's you, if that describes you, if you identify as a follower of Jesus, that what we see that if we are to live in this identity as both a gathered and scattered people, to, to live into this identity of being sent to give, then we ought to experience some kind of compassionate compulsion of sharing the gospel with others. I don't say this to emotionally manipulate you or to guilt you into it, but that there ought to be, if we have been the recipients of God's grace and truth, there ought to be within us a desire to share that truth with others. As I said, the church is not just a collection of recipients only. 
But the church is a collection of people who have been commissioned with the good news of Jesus and to speak this truth boldly and clearly to a world that is burdened and blinded and beat down by sin. To be clear, and, and if you were with us a few weeks ago, I shared this in Acts 17, is that this doesn't mean that we simply preach at people, but that we must be a people who plead, lovingly plead with others, not simply telling them that they're wrong, but that they are lost and they can be found. That we ought to, with, with tears in our eyes, I mean, Paul even says this in verse 31, when he talks about the way in which he proclaimed the gospel. He says, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years... I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so it's not just from a posture of I have the truth and you don't, so believe it, but rather ought to come from a place of compassion, of heartache, of seeing people who are lost in sin and who need forgiveness and redemption. It is not just simply telling people that they are wrong, but rather it is telling them that they are lost and they can be found. Really, what, what, what I mean by this is that we, we shouldn't take any evangelism advice from David Putty. Take a look. David, I'm going to hell, the worst place in the world, the devils and those, those caves and, and the ragged clothing and the heat, my God, the heat. What do you think about all that? It's going to be rough. <laughs> you should be trying to save me. Don't boss me. This is why you're going to hell. I am not going to hell. And if you think I'm going to hell, you should care that I'm going to hell, even though I am not. You stole my Jesus fish, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. No, uh, yeah, I had to find a way to fit Seinfeld into my sermon at some point. But, I, I mean, obviously there, there's, there's things to laugh at in that. But, but when you hear Elaine say, like, you should, if I'm going to hell, you should care that I'm going to hell. And, and obviously, we, we can kind of laugh at that, and it's silly, and kind of ride off putty, but, but man, like, that ought to be, if you're a follower of Jesus, there ought to be a compassion, a compassionate compulsion within us to not just preach at people, but to plead with them, and to see and, and help them come to the truth that Jesus has come to rescue them and bring them into a new life. Generously receiving the good news of Jesus ought to compel us to be a people who generously give that same news to others. Now, I'm sure there are some of us who are, who are thinking and maybe asking this question in our minds is, but if, I mean, isn't that incredibly arrogant for you to claim that, that someone else must believe in your religious perspective in order to avoid going to hell? Isn't that incredibly arrogant? And, 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 and that is a fair question. And if that's your question, I, like, I want to respond to it. And in fact, I would say, I would love to talk to you about it. If you want to chat after the service, I'll be around. I should look like this after the service, but I would love to dialogue with you. But let me respond to that question. To say that it's arrogant to claim that someone else must adopt my religious belief, <laughs> you're kind of accusing me of the very same thing. To say, you, like, like, just let me, let me ask this. What would the alternative be? What would the alternative be? I see basically two other options. It's either I believe you when you say that I'm wrong, but what you're doing here is like, hey, your religious belief that other people should believe in your religious belief, that's wrong. But that's the very thing you're accusing me of. You're saying I'm wrong and that I should adopt your religious belief that no one should make any religious belief upon someone else. And so, I mean, it kind of falls apart like right at the very beginning. 
And so that, that, that really doesn't hold water. But the other option, and I think this is probably what most people get out when they ask this question, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm not representing your perspective, but, but perhaps what people mean is you should keep your religious beliefs to yourself, that your personal religious beliefs should, should re- remain sequestered to the jurisdiction of, of, of private personal conviction. And, and that's, that's, a fair, that's a fair thing to say. But, but what I would say, because, but I think where that is coming from, when people say you should keep your religious beliefs to yourself, I actually don't think that that brings about the humility and love that you think it does. To say that I should keep my religious beliefs to myself is actually not very loving. And it's actually not very humble. I mean, j- just think about it this way. And this is kind of where, I mean, if I truly believed if I truly believed that, that life in Christ is what brings about the life we long to live, and that eternal life and the renewal of this world is possible through Jesus, and I keep you from that truth, how loving am I being in that moment? This is why I appreciate the words, and probably you're familiar with this, Penn Jillette, he's a magician, comedian, entertainer. Uh, he's also a very well-known, outspoken atheist, and a very respectable atheist, actually, in the way in which he dialogues with other people. But, but Pendulet, he, he's known for, for calling out Christians in particular who don't share their faith with others. And Pendulet, he says this, I quote him, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody and to believe, to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? How much do you have to hate? If, if that's what you believe to be true, then why would you not share that truth? And so there really isn't a category to keep my personal religious belief to myself because I don't believe it's just personal. And so we can dialogue about the veracity and the claims of Christianity, but for you to tell me to keep my religious beliefs to myself, it actually goes against one of our culture's narratives of, hey, be true to yourself, follow your heart, do what is right to you. And if what's right to me is believing in Jesus and that he is true for all people, wouldn't you expect me to share that? Now, obviously, we can talk about how we do that and the posture in which we engage in conversation, but to say that Christians should remain private and quiet about the religious beliefs, it actually falls apart according to our own culture's narratives. And if you're a Christian and you feel guilty about this, well, you can take it up with Penn Jillette. He's the one who said that. But, but, but in all seriousness, we should see that if we are to be a people who are sent to give ourselves away, that that should result in us speaking truthfully. But not only, let, let me take it a step further, further, not only is remaining silent unloving, it's actually not as noble and as wise as I think our culture makes it look. To say that you must keep your private beliefs to yourself, is, is, it sounds like there's nobility there. Um, because Christians tend to be critiqued for being very closed-minded, and, and, and there's legitimacy to that critique for sure. I'll be the first one to admit that. But, but are we to believe that the best alternative is to embrace a perpetual open mind where we never come to any conclusion about anything, where we never stand for something definitively? Is truly the best alternative to remain in a state of perpetual open-mindedness? I actually don't think that's what, what you believe or what I believe. In fact, I love how G.K. Chesterton, he said this over a century ago in his book Orthodoxy, in responding to this very viewpoint, he says this, Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of the opening the mind as opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. And I think that's so true. It, it is not noble to simply always have an open mind that never comes to any conclusion. 
If we do, if we find ourselves in a perpetual state of open-mindedness, we'll find ourselves falling prey to the words and finding the truth in the great theologian Katy Perry, who once said, I stood for nothing, and so I fell for everything. To be people sent to give themselves away, it means that we must expect difficulty, and it means that we must expect to speak truthfully. But we would be remiss if we also failed to see, and as Paul builds towards the end here, that the church that is sent to give should expect to give sacrificially. The church should expect to give sacrificially. And this, this is perhaps where we have a little bit of dissonance and kind of distance from Jesus when he talks about it is better to give than to receive. Because you know, we can talk about expecting difficulty, that's fine. We can talk about speaking truthfully, that's fine, but once you start talking about time and money, that's where we get uncomfortable. And I get that, I get that for sure. But, but as a church, uh, we want to be a people who, who press in, not avoid difficult situations and conversations, we want to lean into them. Because the Bible talks about these difficult situations. In fact, that's what Paul says, I did not shy away or shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so when we talk about giving sacrificially that no one really likes talking about, as no one's comfortable about, we do it because the scriptures take it seriously. And also, I, I want to say this, is that when we talk about giving sacrificially, it, it's, it's truly something, we say this every Sunday, that when we talk about giving, whether it's of our finances, of our time, whatever it may be, that it is not something we want from you, it is something we want for you. We truly believe that Jesus' words are not this kind of moral religious manipulation, but they are words of wisdom for our good. And I want to read them one more time in verse 35. In all things, Paul says, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, there's two things I just want to point out from this, from this verse, this, this timeless wisdom that Jesus says. First is that Paul is making a strong connection between this idea of, of working hard, of doing honest work, and caring for the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized. Paul is wanting us to see the connection between these two things. And that word help, where it says help the weak, the, the better translation is actually this idea of mutual support. That the idea of help is not this one-way traffic, but is a two-way street. That as we work honestly through the work God has called us to, we find an opportunity to care for the vulnerable and weak in our midst. And it creates this kind of mutual reciprocity of I have something to provide and I provide compensation for myself, but I'm also meeting a need for you. And so Paul wants to see this connection that, that through the work of his people, through the work of the church, through their service and what they do day in and day out, he's urging them to do their work with honesty, with integrity. Why? So that they might meet the needs of their neighbors, and particularly their neighbors who are more vulnerable and marginalized. And that the needs of their neighbors are met through the goods and services that the Ephesian elders are accomplishing through the work that they do. And, and actually, this is consistent, this is very much in line with Paul's extended teaching uh, in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, uh, we see where Paul, in giving this instruction to the Ephesians, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Paul's idea of work and of integrity in the workplace in what we do is not just, hey, don't steal because it's bad, or hey, avoid doing unethical things because it's bad. He says, no, do your work honestly and with integrity so that you might contribute to the needs of your neighbors. That is what Paul is trying to show us, the connection between our work and the way in which we love and care and serve our neighbors. The call to give and to work sacrificially in the places that God has sent us is truly the call to love God, to love our neighbors, and to love creation. And we should, we should think about this idea of giving sacrificially. We should think about it through the lens of our work, what we do day in and day out, whether it's in the home or outside the home, whether it's paid or unpaid. Do we see the work we do as an opportunity to give of ourselves sacrificially so that others might experience a life of goodness and of flourishing. So that's the first thing I want us to see. When Paul is making this connection of doing our work, of giving ourselves away, he wants us to see the connection of our work and the way in which we love and care for our neighbors. But the second thing to take from this verse is, again, it's that the call to give sacrificially truly is something that Jesus wants for us and not from us. It is not religious manipulation. Jesus understood and he knows the the heart of humanity, the design of humanity, and he knows it because because he is a part of creation. You You see, Jesus has made us in the image of the Son. God has created us in his image, and God knows, in the wisdom of Jesus, Jesus knows as well that what it means to be made in the image of God, it means that inherently we are generous people. Whether we recognize it or not, there's something about our nature as humans made in the image of a generous giver that we also delight in being generous givers ourselves. In fact, there have been countless studies in recent years that have shown this, that there is something inherent and hardwired within us that shows that we have been made for generosity. There was an article a few years ago in the Wall Street Journal uh, entitled Hardwired for Giving, and it cited uh, these various neurological studies. Uh, And in the study, they concluded this. This is really interesting. It says, when people made the decision to donate to what they felt was a worthy organization, parts of the midbrain lit up the same region that controls cravings for food and sex. Well, that'll get your attention. It's just very interesting to see that the neuroscience is showing that there's something about giving that creates a sense of goodness and satisfaction within our being. Similarly, uh, sociologist Christian Smith, in his book, The Paradox of Generosity, uh, he asserts this, that those who give, they receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is a sociological fact. I mean, this sounds so much like Jesus, which I, I, I just, I love it when science kind of catches up with the Bible in some sense. You know, I, I say that in kind of a snarky way, but, but truly, We look at the scriptures and say this is an antiquated, out-of-date, irrelevant piece of religious writing that has nothing to say to our current cultural moment, and yet we find the words of Jesus actually resonating with what we know to be true deep within us. And we truly, as a church, believe the words of Jesus, that it is better to give than to receive, that the generous life is the best life, and that being sent to give is an invitation to reflect our Creator 
who has generously given us so much. So so in light of all of this, in light of all of this truth and this wisdom that, that we see from Paul in echoing the words of Jesus, that for the church to be faithful and fruitful to what she's been called to, she must be sent to give. And when she is sent to give, she should expect difficulty, she should understand that she should speak truthfully, and she should give sacrificially. In light of those things, let me offer us a few things to consider uh, as, as we look back on these timeless words of Jesus. And, and the first thing I would say is this. In light of this wisdom, let us be a people who work to love, who work to love. And, and what I mean by that, again, as I even shared with, with Joel's story, that we truly believe that as we leave this place, we go from being the church gathered to the church scattered into the various vocations and communities and schools and homes that God has placed us in as ambassadors of his kingdom, bringing about the flourishing and the shalom, the peace that comes only through knowing Jesus. We believe that wholeheartedly. And so what would it look like for us to continue to grow in our competency and our skills as uh, in our fields of vocation and influence? Whether you find yourself in a day-in, day-out job, whether you're working in the home or outside the home, what would it look like for us to see the products and services we provide and, and the people that we raise in our homes, what would it look like to see that as something God has called me to and to give of myself sacrificially for the good of others? Can we be a people who work to love? Secondly, can we be a people who give to spread? Give to spread. And what I mean by that is that just as Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive, do we believe that being generous, yes, with our time, yes, with our work, yes, with our words, and yes, with our finances, do we believe that by being generous, we find a joy and a satisfaction that we couldn't in holding these things for ourselves? And, and let me say, I hope I say this more often than I probably, I probably should, is that, is that our church is a generous church. Christ Community has been such a phenomenally generous church, which has allowed us to be a multiplying church in our city and our world. And, and so what I would say, I mean, and I hope you believe this, that when you give to Christ Community, so some of you, you've been giving faithfully, some of you, you have not, which, which is fine. I want you to hear that when you give to Christ Community, you are giving to an initiative that is helping the multiplication of churches in our city and our world. Not only our five campuses around Kansas City, but we have three church partnerships in Kansas City as well through our five campuses. But we also, through our global partners around the world, we, we contribute to the establishment, the development, the multiplication of over 700 churches. And that's a very conservative estimate through our various partnerships in Iran, in Rwanda, in Kenya, in Germany, in China. When you give to Christ Community, you are giving to this multipliable effort because, we, yes, we believe in the local church but we don't want to just grow this church. We want to be a part of something that far outlasts us. We want to give ourselves away. But additionally, you're also giving to to, uh, over 12 local organizations and ministries that we partner with throughout our city at our Olathe campus, Brookside, downtown, Shawnee Mission, and Leewood. You are giving to these organizations and ministries that are seeking the common good of our city and seeking to see people come to know Jesus. And so, and so if, if, you are, if you are with us in that, I, I am so thankful for that. But, but for those of you who have maybe been on the fence or just not sure about what it means to give to the church, I invite you to join us. Again, not because, I, oh, man, I know this is tricky talking about money, but I hope you hear me say this is not about manipulating you. It is not something we want from you. It is something we want for you. And we want you to join us in the work that God has called us to in giving ourselves away for not just Christ's community, not just Kansas City, but for the whole world. 
Uh, and, and then lastly, we should be people who serve to bless. We should be people who serve to bless. And what I mean by that is that, yes, we, we ought to be people who are generous with our time and resources and our work, but there are so many opportunities for us as a church to both serve within our church and outside the walls of our church. Uh, you know, for some of you, it might be partnering with Woodland and becoming a mentor for a student at Woodland Elementary, one of our ministry partners. Uh, it may be joining Mission Southside. Some of you know we, we're doing some work with the South Fork Apartment Complex, and one of the great needs there is helping uh, f- form some ESL classes for some of the Algerian and Latino uh, residents there. A great opportunity to love our immigrant neighbors. Uh, maybe it's joining Youth Front and their work in the Argentine district through uh, uh, Snack Shack KC, which is this new initiative formed by the, the children in that community to form a place where, where kids can hang out and they need volunteers. Maybe it is. Maybe your heart was tugged by the story of what's going on in Rwanda and you want to be more informed and involved about the Shira Diocese and maybe give towards that initiative in helping churches being established and brought back online. Whatever it may be, I encourage you to find ways to serve to bless. And you can find information about all of our ministry partners on our website, on our monthly update, on the weekly update that goes out on Saturdays. Uh, but but perhaps, perhaps another way to serve is to find a way to serve within the walls of our church. And, and next Sunday, we're going to have our fall launch, and you're going to learn so much more about various ways to serve and jump in. So we'd encourage you to think of ways, what does it look like for us to be a people who serve to bless? Well, well let, me, let me close with this. The church has been sent to give herself away. That, that is fundamental to her identity and to her job description. And, and then she can only be sent to give if she believes truly the words of Jesus that it is better to give than to receive. And when the church is marked by these words, she should expect difficulty, she should expect to speak truthfully, and she should expect to give sacrificially. Which by itself sounds incredibly impossible and overwhelming, and yet, when we come to understand and believe and know who the church is built upon, the foundation of the church, and who it is led by, the seemingly impossible becomes possible. You see, the church should expect difficulty because she follows in the one who endured hardship and suffering for the sake of others. The church should expect to speak truthfully because she follows in the steps of the one who is the word of God made flesh that we might be brought into the life and light and truth of who God is and who we are. And the church should expect to give of herself sacrificially because she follows in the one who gave of himself and lovingly traded places with us so that we might trade places with him. In the gospel, Jesus generously gave up everything and became nothing for us so that we might be blessed and in turn be a blessing to others. Jesus taught with his words and displayed with his life that it is truly better to give than to receive. But do we believe it? And will we live like it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask in this time, Lord, for your spirit to, to, to bring about an understanding of, of this truth that we tend to push back against. Lord, help us to see and believe that it is better to give than to receive. And Lord, may we see that in the person of Jesus who gave of himself for us. Lord, may the truth of who Jesus is and his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, may that instill within us a desire to be a people who truly work to love, who, who give to spread and who serve to bless. Lord, may we understand this truth and may may you release us to be a people in the places you've called us to bring about a change, to bring about a peace, to bring about your kingdom in this world for the good of your people and the glory of your name. 
Oh, Lord, would you stir within us and start something afresh in us as we leave this place to reflect your goodness in this world. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, the one who so generously gave himself for us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.